All right. I am super excited, super excited to get on with this message. We spent the last nine weeks talking about some fairly heavy material, right? Talking about Jesus' walk um, and the crucifixion. And, and then finally, last week, we got to celebrate his resurrection. But it's all, it's, it's all tends to be kind of heavy if you start really immersing yourself in what was happening. And so, um, but it was a great series. I really enjoyed teaching it. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Uh, but then after that amount of time came the realization that, oh no, I need to figure out what I'm going to teach next weekend. And so I started thinking through all this list of things that I've had in my mind that I would like to teach on. I'd like to teach on spiritual warfare. I would like to teach on uh, the Torah. I would like to teach on Genesis and our beginnings. And, and, and there's all these things that started going through my head. And I started kind of praying about that, like, Lord, which, where do you want me to go? And, and how do you want me to, to do this? And he didn't give me an answer. For several days, he didn't give me an answer. But what he did tell me is this. He said, I want you to ask yourself, are you a pastor first or a teacher first? Are you a pastor first or are you a teacher first? And I didn't really know exactly what that meant, but I prayed about that and I thought about that for a while. And I said, you know, I feel in my heart that I'm a pastor first. I want to pastor my people, those people that, that God has entrusted to this body and entrusted me with the care of this body. I want to pastor those people. And after I made that decision, the answer came very quickly. Well, then, tell your people what they need to hear. Tell them what they need to hear. Now, that doesn't change the fact that his original charge to me and still is, is teach the word. Teach the word. Teach right out of the Bible. Teach uh, expository style, which is to teach the history and the background and all this. So none of that changes. But when it comes to picking a direction that we go, he very clearly said, you need to know your people, and you need to know what they need to hear. And that's how you choose your direction. So with that, I was able to, to prayerfully consider and then have him just all out confirm the direction that we're going. So we are going to be spending some time the next several weeks in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be spending time in the Gospel of Matthew, specifically Matthew 5 through 7. Does anybody off the top of your head know what Matthew 5 through 7 is? Okay, it should be. It's right there. It's not a secret. I'm giving you a hint. This is an open book test. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Um, the scripture that I want to start with, and, and this, is just, this is not one we're going to necessarily dissect, but it's just Matthew 5 one through two, and it's this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. That is going to be, that's going to set the stage for the next several weeks as we go through this, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there's an, actually an image that I was able to pull up. This, this is not, there were no cameras there at the time, so this is... <laughs> This is a, a representation of what really happened. But you see Jesus down front, and then you see all the people. The reason that this is important to show you, okay, it's, I don't even believe that this is the actual place. I, I think it's staged, but, but I've been there, and it's very similar. 
uh, to where this, the Sea of Galilee is kind of off to one side behind. Um, and it looks very much like this. Here's what's important to know, though, is if you've actually gone there, I know we have several who have actually gone to Israel. Again, another plug, we'll probably go in next year, so think about that if you want to go with us. Um, but you can stand in this place. You can stand in the place where scholars have determined this is probably you know, very, very close to where Jesus stood, and he did that. It is a natural amphitheater. Like if you've ever been up to Red Rocks, you know, you can be clear in the top and, and you can speak and you can hear somebody on the stage and vice versa. It's, it's really natural that way. This is one of those things. It's a natural amphitheater. And so when you've been there, it's very easy to see how Jesus could be up here and he doesn't have to yell and scream. Um, people from all over can hear him very clearly. And so this is the setting for where he is delivering his Sermon on the Mount. And so I just wanted to show you that so, so you kind of get an image of what's going on. But one of the first questions that you're probably going to have is why are we going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, several reasons. Okay, probably most everybody, Christian and otherwise, has at least heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, but do you really know what it is? Other than a sermon delivered on a mountain, other than that, what really is the Sermon on the Mount and why? Is it important that we teach it? And so I started looking through, started looking through a lot of comments that people were making about the Sermon on the Mount, things that famous people had said, uh, different worldly interpretations of what the Sermon on the Mount is, and then, of course, reading through the sermon. And here's what I came up with. This is just a one-sentence summary of what the Sermon on the Mount is, okay? It's a teaching about how to best live a life that is both dedicated to and pleasing to God, free from hypocrisy, full of love, grace, wisdom, and discernment. So among everybody here, who here would like to know the keys to living that kind of life? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, I'll give you a pass, because I know in your heart you're, you're raising your hand. We would all like to be able to live a life like that, Okay, and all of our teaching, all of the word is geared towards helping us with that. But the Sermon on the Mount specifically is one of the greatest single teachings ever in history. In the history of mankind, rarely has there been one specific teaching, one message that encompassed so much of what mankind needs in order to live a life like this. So before we go into that, though, I want to just give you an overview of the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to go into the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to do verse by verse, point by point, and we're going to talk about that in the next few weeks. But I think it's important to lay some groundwork for what the Sermon on the Mount really is, its significance, and then the Gospel of Matthew, its significance before we do that. So that's what today is about, just kind of laying that groundwork for the rest of the series. So I, I hope you're interested in this because um, I found it fascinating as I was studying through. So first of all, just an overview of the gospel. What does gospel mean? Okay. Let's start at the very beginning. Yeah, gospel, a lot of people, good news. But it actually comes from the root of an old English word that's Godspell. It's spelled Godspell, but I think they pronounce it Godspell. But anyway, that's what it means. And that literally just translates as good news. Okay. The other word for good news or for gospel is evangelion. And that's actually the Greek word. Does that sound like another word that we know? It's to evangelize. So literally, to evangelize 
is to share the good news. Okay, so that's what it is. The gospel is the good news. So literally, the gospel, the good news, and evangelizing are all the same. They're one and the same thing. They're tied together. And that's where that comes from. So who is this Matthew that wrote this gospel? Who was he? First of all, he was one of the original 12 apostles. Okay, now that brings up another question. What's an apostle? Okay, you've heard of apostles. You've heard of disciples, right? And they're not necessarily the same thing. All apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. So what's the difference? Well, apostle means someone who is sent out. Someone who is authorized and sent out to share a message. So these original 12, Jesus was surrounded by disciples everywhere that he went. And a disciple just simply is a follower. If you follow somebody and you try and adhere to their teachings or be like them, you're a disciple of theirs. So there are plenty of disciples of Jesus, and then there were apostles who were authorized to go forth into the world and share that message. Specific authorization, specific anointing raises them to the level of apostle. And so that's what Matthew is. But Matthew wasn't always an apostle. Matthew actually started out as a man named Levi. That was Matthew's given name. That's who he was from birth. And what he was was not an apostle. He was not a rabbi. He was a tax collector. And what do we know from the Bible about tax collectors? They are reviled. Boo hiss, exactly. Nobody liked tax collectors. They were lumped in regularly with criminals and thieves and, and, every, and all kinds of riffraff, right? That's, if you're a tax collector, that's what you were considered. You were considered the lowest of the low. Many times Jesus was like, why are you hanging out with tax collectors? Oh, and criminals and murderers and all that. But tax collectors, why would you hang out with them? If you're a tax collector, I apologize. I'm talking about historic tax collectors. We have a kinder, gentler tax collector system now. And really that is true because tax collectors back then, one of the reasons that they were so reviled, that, that Levi was so reviled is because, number one, typically, especially in Jerusalem, they were Hebrews. Okay, So they would have been Hebrews employed by, tasked by, authorized by the Roman government or whoever the government in charge was at the time to collect taxes from the Hebrew people. Now, typically what they would do is that they would go to uh, a market or, or someplace where, where commerce was going on, um, and they would set up a booth. They would set up a booth, and what they would do is that they would watch for people either going into or coming out of these markets, either carrying their goods to sell or they've just bought some goods and they leave. And then they would tax them on their way in and on their way out. And what they taxed them was more or less whatever they thought they wanted to tax them. So quite literally, you could be walking into a market carrying some goods to sell. You would be stopped right there. They would tax you. Then you would go on in and you would sell your goods. And then whoever's carrying the goods that they bought to leave would be on their way out. And they'd get stopped again. And they'd get taxed on those goods. Sound familiar? Anyway, no, no comment. But that's what would happen. And the amount that you were taxed was purely whatever the tax collector felt that you could pay and felt was appropriate. Okay? But 
the way that the tax collectors got paid, they got paid by whatever extra they could collect. So if they determined the tax on this, these goods that you were bringing into the market was going to be um, 20 shekels or whatever, whatever it was, they would go, but I think you can pay 25. And I'll take that 20, I'll take that extra five for myself, and that's how I get paid. So literally, they would extort people for Rome, but then for their own personal gain. So this is why they're lumped in with the, the evil and the low and the and the 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 dregs of the earth in society. They were not respected because if you saw one of them coming towards you, you're like, oh no, here we go. What's he gonna try and get out of me? And you can't leave. He's got the authority of the Roman government behind him. So you had to, to give in to that. So um, that's where we are. That's where Matthew is. And Matthew, in fact, when Jesus meets Matthew, Levi, at the time, he is sitting in his tax collector booth. Okay, Matthew 9.9 actually talks about this if you want to look it up. But essentially, here's, here's the gist of their transaction. Matthew, uh, Levi is sitting in his tax collector booth. Jesus walks up. Jesus sees him, and he says, drop your things and follow me. At which point, Levi stands up and follows Jesus. That's the extent of the, of the entire meeting transaction. Levi changes his name to Matthew. Matthew means literally, in that language, it means gift of God. So it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you've been doing. It doesn't matter how sordid your past might be, or better yet, how sordid you think it is, how broken you think you are, or what your circumstances are. When Jesus calls you from out of that thing, all it takes is a heart decision. Say, yes, I'm going to set this aside and I'm going to follow you. And instantly, it changes your identity. Instantly, it changes who you are. You go from becoming Matthew, the reviled tax collector who can hardly show his face among his own people, to becoming Matthew, gift of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It happens in a moment. So don't let anybody ever tell you that if you want to spend more time with Jesus, you want to deepen your relationship with Jesus, you want to give your heart to him for the first time ever, don't ever let anybody tell you, go get your stuff together first. Go get holy, get righteous, get right with God, and then you can come to Jesus. Because when Jesus calls you, he'll take your baggage and he'll take everything. Because he just wants your heart. And he'll sift all that out. So that's where we are. So the Gospel of Matthew, written somewhere around 50 to 70 A.D., give or take, 50 to 70 A.D., which, depending on how you do the math, is about 20 to 40 years after Jesus was crucified. Okay? So 20 to 40 years after Jesus was crucified, Matthew sits down to write this Gospel. Okay? Now, I don't know if he did it all in one setting, but that's when he did it. And he had a specific point for doing this. Okay, now he was the first one to actually write down the gospel. Matthew is the, not only the first gospel listed uh, in the New Testament, but he was the first one to actually write down and, and solidify all these things into one writing. 
It was the first one in existence out there. Now, he's not like Luke. Remember, we talked about Luke a while ago being chronological. Luke actually says, hey, this, my job is I'm putting these things in order so that you can make sense of what happened and when. Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew's got a point to make. He's trying to make a point about the kingship and the authority of Jesus Christ and who he is. And so he takes these events throughout the ministry of Jesus, and he sort of mixes them up. And so they're not exactly chronological like Luke is. So it can be a little bit harder to follow. But it was actually put, if you read through this, you'll notice there are a lot of phrases that are repeated over and over again. And the reason they're repeated over and over again is because this was meant to be transmitted verbally. Again, there wasn't a whole lot of writing down of these things at the time. So when he would tell his gospel to people, when he would preach this gospel, it was done in such a way that it had kind of a meter and a rhyme to it, and it would help them to be able to remember and verbally transmit. So when you're reading through this and you notice the same phrase over and over again, those are the, either the ends or the beginnings of new thoughts. And so that's how it was written. It was written to an audience, primarily, of Jewish converts, okay, Jews who had converted to following Jesus. That's typically the audience that, that this was written to. Now, there's scholars of all kinds, and it's their entire life's mission to make sense of who was this written to, where was it written, when was it written, what is the meaning, and they dissect every single part of the Bible. But I'm going to teach you something that's just very, very simple, is to look at this, and you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And the reason that you know that is because some of the phrases that Matthew uses. He uses the phrase, kingdom of heaven, 32 times. In fact, it's the only gospel, it's the only, in the New Testament, it's the only time the phrase, kingdom of heaven, is listed. Now, I, I make that in, in opposition to the phrase, kingdom of God. Because Jewish sensibilities were, and their tradition and their respect level was, we don't say the name of God out loud. We don't even write it down. If you've ever seen any, any Jewish writing, it's G space space. They don't say that name out loud. And so when Matthew here is writing this gospel in order to teach and edify and instruct these Jewish converts, he's not going to say the kingdom of God, and immediately have them bristle and go, oh, I'm not listening to this. So he says the kingdom of heaven. One very, very obvious giveaway that he's writing to this Jewish example. So, for example, Matthew 3, 2. We've heard this. I was going to put it on the screen. I didn't. Is just simply repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've heard that before, right? But it's properly the kingdom of heaven is at hand and not kingdom of God is sometimes you'll hear. That's because Matthew wrote that phrase in his gospel. So many of the Jews that he was writing to would have seen Jesus as a prophet, yes. A good teacher, yes. Very good man, yes. But in many cases, they would have seen Jesus as just another prophet. Okay, Because in the Old Testament, between major and minor prophets, there were something like 70 prophets. Okay, so they were very familiar with the teachings of existence of these, these succession of prophets throughout the ages. They were very familiar with that. It wouldn't have been hard at all for them to say, okay, Jesus is another prophet. But it was important for Matthew to establish this is not just another prophet. 
This is the Son of God. This is the promised Messiah, and he is the rightful king of Israel. And so that's where we are when Matthew is trying to establish his gospel and establish the authority of Jesus Christ to say the things that he said. Because how many of you know that how well you receive a teaching, the difference that it makes in your heart, has a lot to do with the authority of the teacher? So if you don't accept Jesus' authority as Messiah, if you don't accept Jesus' authority as the rightful king of Israel and all that he says he is, if you don't accept that authority, then when he tells you, hey, I know what you've been taught for years, but I want you to set that aside and listen to me, how much impact is that going to have? It's going to be difficult if you don't understand his authority. And so that's where we are. Matthew is trying to establish the authority of Jesus as the promised Messiah. And so when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, reads like this. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's saying right there, this is what this is. Jesus is the Messiah He is the son of David, the son of Abraham, thereby saying, this is the rightful king. This is the Messiah and the rightful king of Israel. And so that's where he is. He's trying to do this. In fact, in his gospel, he refers to Jesus as the son of David nine times. This is the son of David, son of David, son of David. Nine times he does that. He actually quotes Old Testament prophecy about Jesus 60 times. In his gospel. Sixty times in his gospel, he quotes Old Testament prophecy that directly points to Jesus as the Messiah. So he is endeavoring here, first and foremost, to establish the authority of who Jesus is. Okay, chapters one and two talk about the birth of Jesus and his genealogy, talks about that and his rightful place as king. Chapters three and four talk about Jesus being essentially the forerunner, or or John the Baptist being the forerunner of Jesus, drawing an analogy really between John the Baptist and all the way back to the prophet Isaiah. Kind of draws that parallel right there. Um, And then, and then he goes into the Sermon on the Mount, okay? But one of the other things that he does is he really, really emphasizes, this is Matthew, one one of his common themes in this book is that he really emphasizes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, okay? He goes very much into, in depth into talking about, and then Jesus, when he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount, very much points out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and with good reason, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we've, we've heard, you've, most of you have at least heard the term, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and normally what it is is in context of they said all these things, but they were hypocrites, and Jesus poked him in the chest and said, you are a hypocrite. He had no problem pointing you out and calling you out in front of people and saying, you're a hypocrite. Everything that you're believing, everything that you're saying, the way that you're interpreting the word of God, it's all for your own gain, and it's wrong. So he had no problem doing that. And so in this gospel, he continues that theme. Because even the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't agree. Okay, two of the most historically well-known groups of legalistic, we are, we are interpreting the, the letter of the Bible to all the way to death. We are, our entire life's mission is to 
is to interpret the Bible and to lay down the law and to make sure that that biblical law is enforced. That's their entire life's mission. But even at that, they couldn't agree with how to do it. See, the Pharisees thought that the reason that the Israelis and the Jewish culture, not the Israelis, that the Hebrews and the Jewish culture had been persecuted for so long was their own doing. Because God laid down the rules in the Old Testament, laid down the rules for how we should live, how we should interact with him and with each other, and we're not doing that. We're blowing it, and so God's punishing us by sending us this succession of of ruling countries, of ruling monarchs, all of which are pagans, and he's giving them authority over us because it's our own fault. And so they made it their mission, like, okay, we're going to get right with God. So our entire life's mission from the very moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep is going to be to live life exactly by the letter of the law in the Old Testament. And not only are we going to live our lives by the letter of the law, but we're going to make sure you live your lives by the letter of the law. And maybe if we do that enough and we're we are passionate enough about that and we do it seriously enough before God, then he'll take mercy on us and he'll give us liberty. That's where the Pharisees are. The Sadducees are a little bit more pragmatic. They still believe in the authority of the law. They still want to follow the strict authority of the law, but they're a little bit more pragmatic. Like we need to be a little more political about this. We need to come under the authority of the Roman government or whoever it is that's governing us at the time. We need to play this political game in order to better ourselves as a nation, in order to survive as a Jewish people. We need to play the game. And so their mission in life is to, yes, they they adhere to the law, they believe in the law, but they want to play the political game because their belief is that God's not watching out for them. What they gain in terms of favor, what they gain in terms of blessing on their lives is strictly due to whatever political games they can play for their own gain. So that's where they are. It's not that they don't believe in the law. They just emphasize it a little bit differently. Theologically, they're a little bit different. The Pharisees believed that God was going to send the Jews a Messiah who would bring peace by essentially conquering whoever, the Romans or whoever was in power at the time. The Sadducees did not believe that a Messiah was coming. They didn't believe a Messiah was coming. What they believed is whatever happened was up to them and whatever they could do. So you would see them playing the game and being a whole lot more political. So that's where they are. But Jesus and his teaching was always at odds with both of them, constantly. So you can see what a thorn he would be in their side as they're trying to to play the political game and and gain favor for their people. And Jesus is pointing them out in public and saying, you're wrong. And then the Pharisees, who really probably in their hearts started out with the best interests of Israel at hand, of saying, hey, these, these are our people, and if only we did it right, we would gain God's favor again. And here's Jesus, this fly in the ointment, saying, no, 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 trying to, trying to throw a wrench into the works of everything that they would teach. So he was quite a danger to them, which is why Jesus needed 
Jesus didn't need it. Matthew needed to establish the authority of Jesus to say the things that he said. If people are going to go against what they're being taught, if people are going to go against what they've been force-fed, in many cases, about the law and the letter of the law and the blessing that comes from following the letter of the law regardless of the death that it can sometimes bring, if he's going to go against that teaching, he needs to establish who Jesus is. And that's what this gospel is all about, is establishing the authority of Jesus. Because only the king could change laws like that. Only the promised Messiah could stand in the face of the teaching that was going on at the time and change it. So it was imperative that Matthew established the authority of who Jesus was. So the, Matthew, uh, the gospel of Matthew starts out with Jesus and his genealogy, establishing his authority. Then it goes into the teaching of Jesus. So here's our king. Here's our Messiah. Now here's what he's teaching you. And then at the end of Matthew, the last chapter of Matthew, Matthew 28, very famous teaching, okay? It's called the Great Commission. Jesus says, go forth and make disciples of all nations. So he's saying, here's our king. Here's our promised Messiah. Here's his teaching. And now that you know it, go do it. That encapsulates the gospel of Matthew. Here's our king. Here's what he says. Now go do it. That's what it's about. And in between those two, in between here's our king and now go do what he says is some of the greatest teaching that mankind has ever known. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is so well known that many, many secular sources constantly quote the teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, a lot of the teachings, a lot of the phrases, a lot of the scripture has kind of made it into modern lexicon. We say these things sometimes without even really thinking that they're scripture. They're used by believers and non-believers alike. In fact, now, Martin Luther was obviously a believer, but here's what he said about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is Moses quadrupled. Okay, you think of Moses as being the giver of the law, right? It's Moses quadrupled. Because Moses multiplied, it is Moses multiplied to the highest degree because it's a law of inward righteousness which no child of Adam can possibly obey. In other words, what he's saying is you think the law is hard when it's written down in front of you saying do this, do this, do this? You think that's hard? You wait until you have to inject heart into it and do all these things but with the right heart. That's hard. And it would be impossible if it wasn't for what Jesus did. Jesus reconciled us with the Father and gave us access to the Holy Spirit, whereby we can now rightly interpret the law. And that brings life. When you interpret the law, you can interpret the letter of the law in a way that brings life or in a way that brings death. And Matthew here in his gospel is saying it brings life. And he's documenting the very words of Jesus that bring that life. 
It's the longest single teaching, in fact, of Jesus. It's the longest single sermon, if you will, that Jesus gives while he's doing ministry. Chapter 5 talks about the relationship of Jesus to the law. Okay? Chapter 6 deals with our relationship with God. And then 7 is our relationship with each other. So in a nutshell, 5, 6, and 7 talk about those things. So in a paraphrase, Jesus said this. He said, the truly fortunate people are those who are rich in the things that matter to God. Things that matter to God. And, in, and as we go through, you're going to see what those things are. The Sermon on the Mount is specifically referenced by, again, people all over the world and have for the longest time. And when I was looking up some quotes of famous people and things that people would have said about the specific teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, I came across one, a guy named Richard Dawkins. He's actually a well-known atheist. He's an author. He writes all kinds of books about how Jesus didn't exist and God doesn't exist and none of these things. But here's what he says. This is a quote from him. He says, Jesus, if he existed was surely one of the great ethical innovators of history. The Sermon on the Mount is way ahead of its time. His turn-the-other-cheek beat Gandhi and Martin Luther King by over 2,000 years. I love how this atheist is acknowledging the great teaching of Jesus and says, if he existed. Love that. Phrases like, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth... Turn the other cheek, love thy neighbor, bless those who curse you. Those are all things that are taught in the Sermon on the Mount and have become a part of the kind of worldly conversation. You hear those things all the time, and many people have no idea where they come from. In fact, Mahatma Gandhi, very well known, good man, good teacher, a Buddhist, says this, it's actually his most, when he's quoting anyone else other than his own teachings, this is his most common quote, or was his most common quote. It's from Matthew 39 to 44. And it reads like this, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn your other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What's that sound like to you? The teachings of Gandhi, in a nutshell right there. The teachings of men like Martin Luther King, in a nutshell right there. And world leaders... Religious leaders all over the world commonly use those themes, which are originally taught by Jesus. Gandhi, in fact, in a conversation with this guy named Lord Irwin, who was the viceroy of India at the time, said this. He's sitting down, he's sitting in a political meeting, with potentially a political adversary, but he's sitting in this meeting, and he says this. When your country and mine shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in his Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved the problems not only of our countries, but of, those, but of those of the whole world. Gandhi, a Buddhist, says this. 
Oliver Wendell Holmes, if you've heard that name, he was an American poet, writer, uh, Harvard professor back in the 1800s, okay? He says this. He says, most people are willing to take the Sermon on the Mount as a flag to sail under, but few will use it as a rudder by which to steer. Man, that impacted me. Because you hear the sayings, you can read the teachings, and you can go, man, that's good. That's good. I want to live my life like that. I'm going to raise that flag and live my life under that. But am I going to refer to it when something comes up? When it's my opportunity to love my enemy? Or any of the other dozens of things that Jesus addresses right here? Am I going to go to that first and say, I'm going to let that steer me? And I'm going to let that determine how I act. Hmm. Convicted me, I can tell you. So why is it important for us to know? Why is the Sermon on the Mount, all this stuff, important for us to know? Especially in light of the fact that we have the Holy Spirit in us who can testify to us what is true and what is correct. Why is it important? Number one, it's because the Bible is unchanging. The Word of God does not change with our interpretation, which is typically based on what our society thinks about things, right? What our common society tends to think about is constantly changing. What we consider acceptable and okay 20 years ago is not okay now. Another 20 years from now, we'll be going back 40 years and we'll be looking at other things. It's always changing, but the Word of God never changes. And the Word of God teaches us how to respond to a loving God, a loving God who loved us enough to actually lay down the words and say, here's how I want you to live, and here's how I want you to interpret it. Then he sent Jesus to help us, to help us live a practical life of discipleship that is not simply the appearance of righteousness. Because the appearance of righteousness, more often than not, leads to death. Now, by appearance, I mean you're trying to appear like the Pharisees, Sadducees. We're trying to appear righteous, but that's not what's in my heart. That causes more death than anything. And in fact, the display of righteousness is not something that we can ever really attain. Paul writes in Romans 3.10, again, it's not up there, but he's actually quoting one of the Psalms. Paul says, there is none righteous, not even one. None of us are righteous. You can know the word inside and out. You can do your best to live it every single day. You're still not righteous. You need Jesus. And you need his interpretation. And you need to follow his word. Be a disciple of Jesus. And you can't be a disciple of someone if you don't understand, believe, and trust in their authority. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the promised Messiah. He was the rightful king of Israel. And he is God. And he is your Lord and Savior. And if you call on his name, he is your Lord and Savior. And any righteousness that you have comes through him. So that's our job. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. So when you consider the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, I hope you join us in the next several weeks as we go through these things and really learn what Jesus is teaching about how we need to interact with each other. But as we go through that, you're going to be confronted with a choice. 
Even right now, you have a choice. A choice to distance yourself. You can distance yourself from the teachings of Jesus and thereby distancing yourself from Jesus. You can do that, or you can choose to distance yourself from the teaching and the legalism that can lead to death. Because I guarantee all of us have places in our hearts where we are hanging on in a legalistic fashion, and we're more than happy to share it with those people that we see doing life wrong. Now, that's different than correction, because correction in the Word will bring life. Have you ever quoted the Bible or quoted your interpretation of Scripture to somebody and had it completely turn them off? Completely turn them off, many cases drive them away from Jesus, not closer. I know I've done it, and I didn't mean anything bad at the time. I was saying, the Word says this, and I immediately saw death. The fruit of the Word of our Lord is life. And so we have that opportunity. Are we going to draw closer to him and live by his teachings? Or are we simply going to read the word and interpret it like the Pharisees did and say, the law says this, and just see what happens? Does it lead to life or does it lead to death? The way that leads to life without fail is the teaching of Jesus Christ. And by his authority, that's where we need to live. Are we going to live our lives by what feels right? Or are we going to live our lives by what is right? Feelings change. Feelings change. So you have to believe in Jesus and his authority. So what I want to do as we wrap up this message right now, we're going to have communion. Communion is a wonderful response to what Jesus has done in your life. And so the way that we do it, if you're new, we have at the crosses, we have juice and bread and crackers, you can serve yourself there, serve your family there if you'd like. Gabe and I will be up front and we've got wine and bread and we would love to serve you. But before we do that, I wanna pray over you. I wanna pray that God would reveal, and I want you to pray this along with me, not just sit there until I'm done. Pray this along with me, that God would reveal places in your life where maybe you were hanging on to some legalistic attitudes. Where in my life Am I hanging on to these things because the word says, but I'm not fully trusting in the authority of Jesus to tell me how to interpret that law. So instead of listening to Jesus in the way he says I should do it, I'm just gonna stick to the letter of the law because it's safer that way. So I'm gonna pray that over you right now and I want you just to respond in prayer to whatever the Lord is telling you. We have the the prayer team in the back. They would be happy to pray with you if you need help to pray something through. But let's do this. Father God, Lord, I just thank you that you sent your son, Jesus. You gave him the very authority of God, the creator of heavens and earth, to come down to earth, to walk amongst us, and to explain to us how to live a life dedicated and pleasing to you. We thank you first and foremost that we have access to you through the Holy Spirit, which came through Jesus. Now, we are no longer ignorant to what your heart is. We no longer have to simply go to the letter of the law, and regardless of the life or death that brings, 
Lord, we can now seek your heart directly and hear that rhema word from you, that word from you that goes directly into our hearts that doesn't diminish the law, but explains the law to us. And so, Father, I just want you to pinpoint in our hearts right now, is there a place where maybe we aren't trusting in you? We aren't trusting in you enough, in our ability to hear from you enough, and we're holding on to legalism and the letter of the law. Show us places where maybe that has led to death or anything less than life. Lord, we want to repent of a spirit of legalism. And we want, to, we want to accept your spirit of truth and of life and of joy and of pure love. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And in that, he says, here are the two things I need you to know. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If our actions, no matter what the word says, if our actions aren't bringing that kind of love to God and to each other, then we're seeing it wrong. And so Lord, we just give you the freedom to come into our hearts and show us where those places might be. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that you do all that you're going to do through us. We thank you for the opportunity to be your hands and feet, to be a reflection of who you are in our communities and to each other. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Feel free to start moving around and and take communion when you are ready. Um, And the worship team will dismiss you when they're ready.
Spread it around everyone and everywhere we go.